the drive to be on the top starts very early. Here's a photo of my daughter Lauren and her big, bigger cousin Lindsay. Aren't they cute? Lauren is five months younger than Lindsay, and we have a photo of Lindsay sitting on top of Lauren. Can you even see Lauren squash there? We actually have a, 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 a picture of them when they were younger, and Lauren, Lauren couldn't, do, couldn't sit up. I mean, she was crawling, I guess, but uh, Lindsay was much more mobile, and she just squashed her down. She sat on her. Now, as an adult, Lauren can probably hold her own if they were ever to get into a wrestling match about uh, who was the top dog. But we do have that photo that says that Lindsay was the most powerful of the two at one point in time. Our culture especially is driven by rewarding the person on top. And today we're going to look at a top dog in Jesus' day. We're in a sermon series entitled Jesus Through the Eyes Of, and we are looking at people who are contemporaries of Jesus. What did they think about Jesus? How did their understanding of this man grow and change? And how can we look at Jesus through their interactions with him? And today we come to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. All of the Gospels except Matthew introduced John the Baptist in the first few verses of their books. Matthew waits till chapter 3 to introduce him. But um, the story of John's miraculous birth is spelled out in Luke with the detail that upon meeting Mary... Elizabeth, who was John's mom, felt her baby John leap for joy in her womb. It was a Holy Spirit response from Elizabeth and John to Mary and Jesus before the boys were ever born. And no one else can say that they recognized Jesus when they and Jesus were both in the womb. John's birth was miraculous. An angel told John's father that even though he and Elizabeth were old and childless, they would have a son. And Luke chapter 1 picks that up. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. What if somebody said that about your child before your child was born? He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him. Go before who? Go, what, what's that talking about? It's not spelled out there, but the him in this verse is the Messiah Jesus we find later on. He will go before him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Maybe we need a John the Baptist in our culture today. John the Baptist was the older cousin, and his ascendancy to the top came before that of his younger cousin. Luke 1, verse 80 tells us the child, that's John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. So 30-some years pass. The next thing we know about John is that he's preaching up a storm, still in the wilderness. Droves of people are flocking to him. Unlike Coachella or Burning Man, this was not a fashion show, and it was not entertainment. 
verse 4 in Matthew 3. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Now try to make that look good. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Yeah. Woo, he must have looked rough. And then the people of Israel, of Jerusalem, and all Judea were going out to him in the re and all the region along the Jordan. These were huge crowds. John was fulfilling what the angel told his father. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing the, their sins. But when John saw many, many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. I kind of feel like he was pounding. Did, no, he didn't have anything to pound, did he, out there? Okay, I feel like that was called forth out of his sermon. Words... Even the act of baptism, these are nothing if they are not followed by a radical change of life. Repentance bears visible fruit that can be seen. And you don't get baptized if you don't really, really repent. John goes on speaking to the religious leaders. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these pews to raise up children to Abraham. Only he said stones because they weren't in a sanctuary. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I love John the Baptist preaching, don't you? John the Baptist is the OG hellfire and brimstone preacher who spoke the truth boldly and baldly. Look at this picture of him. Fists clenched, you see? Look at his expression. He's not playing around. He was harsh. He did not hold himself back. And his message of repentance caught the heart of people who were longing for God, all the way up to the religious leaders who were used to holding the reins of power themselves. Did they take his talk of repentance seriously? Or had they been there just to put on a show as he suspected? John the Baptist shows a clear understanding that he is fulfilling prophecy, that his work is to prepare the hearts of the people for their Messiah, that the Messiah who was greater was coming after him. Now, the thing about success, the thing about popularity, the thing about power is that we are tempted to have it go straight to our head. And, of course, we celebrate when something goes well. Of course, we take credit for it. We've worked hard, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But sometimes, sometimes, the feeling of success becomes the adrenaline that we pursue. Sometimes, we may be tempted to take more credit than is due. 
Human tendency is to surround ourselves with people who pump us up to follow the positive hype. And John the Baptist was at the top of his game. It sounds like in this huge, broad swath of territory, all of Judea, whoever could physically get to where John the Baptist was baptizing went to hear him. Many of them were baptized. There were crowds. There was responsiveness to his message, harsh as it was. It could easily have gone to his head. And at the height of John's power, his younger cousin Jesus walks up. We don't know if the two cousins played together as kids. We don't even know if they ever met. Kind of sounds like John was stuck in the wilderness for all his life. That was his preparation for ministry. We know that when Jesus showed up, he definitely knew who John was. Everybody knew he's the guy up there with the awful clothes, ugly clothes. He was a fiery preacher. He was a baptizer. It would be obvious to anybody who John the Baptist was. But Jesus was incognito. He was the Messiah. But at this point in time, no one knew it except John. Now, he'd been saying all along, here, there's one more powerful than I who is coming after me. And when Jesus asks his cousin to baptize him, John refuses, and he says he's not in a place to baptize. Jesus should be the other way around. But Jesus insisted, and the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit came over Jesus like a dove, and God's voice thundered from heaven. Immediately after that, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this was Jesus' preparation for his ministry. So are we seeing this pattern that with both John and Jesus, it's happened with them and with many figures in the Bible, God has something for us in the wilderness. When we are stripped from the comforts of life, when we feel our life is is barren when we are suffering God can use our wilderness period to come close to us as never before to love us as never before especially when it's hard to feel him he is preparing us for the next thing when Jesus starts his public ministry almost immediately there is tension not between John and Jesus but between their disciples their followers. And let me tell you, the tug over territory is real. In my family, we used to call dibs on the window seats in the car. Now, that was prime territory uh, in the car. And we had four windows, and we already knew two of them were going to our parents. So that only left two for four kids. And so the window seat was coveted. It was lovely. You could look out better. You could open or close it according to your feeling. You could stick your hand out there, your body out there. That was back in the day when we could stick our whole body out the window. Um, so we would call dibs as we raced out of the house. Now, my older sister, if she didn't get her dibs in in time, she'd pull the trump card. You know what it was? She's the oldest. So she automatically gets a window. I just hated that. We argued about that. It took a very dim view of that accidental order of birth. 
granting lifetime special privileges. Now that struggle over that territory in the car has been repeated many times in the youth group over the years, many times. And the old, older car, I'm older than you, is used many times in the youth group. And um, it's just automatic. But it isn't just car, car windows, is it? That tug of war over territory re rears its ugly head in the workplace, in the home, in every school, in every playground, and in every church. Many times the oldest or the person who has been around the longest finds it difficult to move over and make room for youngers or new people. <clears throat> and this is human nature and it's natural because the one who holds the territorial power cares, cares deeply and has worked hard and sometimes without recognition and was here first. When the work was harder and, and this person did all the grunt work and then somebody's just gonna come by and slide in there, there are many good reasons and good motivations behind these power struggles. So it is no wonder to me that John's disciples got a little bit testy. They'd been in on the ground floor, they'd put in the hard work, and now Jesus was siphoning disciples away from John. John chapter 3, verse 22 tells us, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John was also baptizing at this other place because the water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, hadn't been thrown into prison. We're going to get that later. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciple and a Jew, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified, he's here baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. And, of course, this goes for everyone. The general truth is that a person can receive only what God has given him, but it's a truth really specific to Jesus Christ. Those who come to Jesus are given to him by God, and whatever Jesus has is a gift from God, including disciples who were of John and now are going to Jesus. You yourselves are witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. And now John's going to tell a little parable. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, there's a whole lot of people in power who do not have John the Baptist's attitude. And notice the must. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples had been complaining about God's very plan of salvation. That's what they were complaining about. God is working in Jesus. They're complaining about that. They had lost sight of John's purpose, which he had always been very clear about and which he now has to remind them of that he was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. John's disciples had gotten 
caught up in growing John's ministry larger and reaching more and more people with the message of repentance, of baptizing more and more people. They were caught up in that success and the numbers game. They had completely lost sight of the Messiah. Jesus was the competition instead of the main event. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist uttered those seven powerful words and turned culture, human nature, instinct, power, influence upside down. So this is something that we learn from John the Baptist's clear-eyed view of his cousin. Number one, know your purpose. John's purpose was to bear witness to the light. He has been at this point the principal interpreter of Jesus. And because John had been preparing the way for Jesus, when Jesus begin, begins his public ministry, people have been turning already in humility and repentance toward God. And John teaches us that our purpose revolves around Jesus and not the other way around. A good question to ask ourselves is, does my purpose revolve around success? Am I driven by numbers? Do I use my influence to build myself up, to build my program up? And if we answer in the affirmative, that may not be a bad thing in itself. I'm not against success and numbers and building ourselves up. I would hope that we do work towards success. But arching over all of those questions is the purpose that we share with John to lift Christ up. And sometimes in our drive for success, instead of lifting Christ up to people, we end up running over people. Sometimes we excuse the means we have used for the sake of the final goal. But look at all these numbers of people. There are many Christian leaders who said, but look at the numbers of people who have come, come to know the Lord. Pay no attention to what's behind the curtain. Sometimes we exhibit unchristlike behaviors and attitudes, but justify it because the project is successful. Our purpose is the same as John, to bear witness to the light. So how we do things and who we are as we are doing them is as important as the success that we are trying to achieve. So that's first, know your purpose. Second is focus on Jesus. Now we would think that this is a given, but sadly, it isn't automatic. Our motivations get muddled, all of us. All of us have muddled motivation. Comp competition sneaks in there. A wound gets reopened. Jealousy finds a toehold. Bitterness takes root. In the name of Jesus, terrible things have been done in our history. Spiritual leaders have used their authority abusively. But John's phrase helps us sort out our motivations and the motivations of others. Do I decrease so that Christ may increase? Do our leaders decrease in order to increase Christ? Or do they increase themselves? And a rigorous focus on Jesus helps sort us out. Uh, thirdly, stay humble. Everyone can use a good dose of humility. We need the reminder that we are not the bridegroom. We are not Jesus. Say that to yourself. I am not Jesus. 
this is hard to remember. When we are planning and orchestrating, and sometimes it's hard to remember in prayer. Have you ever told Jesus what he should do and how he should do that? I am not Jesus. And the fourth one is reflect joy. John beautifully illustrated for his disciples that what that shared joy between the friend and the groom looks like. And with his own attitude towards Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus looks like this, taking our hands off of the controls, giving it to, not to that person over there, I don't know why I'm, I'm pointing to my husband, but not to that person over there either, giving the controls to Jesus and watching him at work, and it brings pure joy. Of course, it brings a little bit of confusion too doesn't it? Because Jesus does not work the way I would do it, the way we think he should. And there's one more incident between the cousins that I want to tell you about. And to set the scene, you might know that John the Baptist, this was, this was kind of referenced early, John the Baptist's truth-telling got him imprisoned. He preached about the repentance of sin, and he even preached that King Herod ought to repent and turn away from the sin of taking his brother Philip's wife for himself. Now Herod had a lot of power. He got tired of John calling him out. So he just went and had him arrested and put in prison. Matthew 11 verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? What? wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a Didn't John say of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God? Wasn't John so sure that Jesus was the light, the promised one? He was so sure of his cousin. Why is he doubting now? Are we going to wait for another one, Jesus? People have puzzled over that change in John. And one thing that it does, a helpful thing it teaches us, is that faith is not perfect. It just is not a high line up here. Our faith, like John's, kind of wavers a little bit. It has its ups and downs. Even he had fluctuations. But I think this question comes down to the differences between the cousins. John preached hellfire and brimstone. Jesus also preached repentance. But where was the winnowing fork? John might have wondered. Where was the judgment? Where was the burning of the chaff? Why wasn't Jesus bringing down a well-placed lightning bolt every once in a while on one of those Pharisees who deserved it? Zap them, and then people will get the idea. I think John expected a more fiery Jesus. We know that many contemporaries of Jesus did, and that is one of the reasons why Jesus didn't claim the title Messiah because it came with all of these loaded expectations. It had too much baggage. So in verse 4 of chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus answers them and says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. John would have known that these words are a prophecy about the Messiah out of Isaiah the book of Isaiah, and Jesus completely fulfilled them. 
Jesus said, verse 6, I'm blessed as anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by a wind? No. What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? No. Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you that among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Now that was probably the biggest praise that Jesus could ever give his cousin. And imagine to be acknowledged by the one that you came for. John had fulfilled his purpose. But notice that Jesus didn't say it to the disciples of John. They had already left. And we don't know whether John himself ever heard these words of praise from Jesus. And that's okay because then Jesus finished the sentence. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We are driven by numbers, order, hierarchies. We're driven by power and status. But Jesus will have none of it. The least in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. You, little old you, are greater in the kingdom than this uniquely important prophet. John the Baptist was a wonderful man of faith, of discipline, integrity. Hard, he was incorruptible, hard work, determination. He is someone to look up to. And he gave us the key to discipleship. And John's gift can be ours if we choose to accept it. Jesus must increase but I must decrease. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, this is such a different way of thinking than we naturally think. To give away power for the sake of Jesus. To decrease so that you must increase. Help us, Lord, in our own lives when these uh, times come in our life for us to decrease. Help us to know that it is the time for us to decrease so that Christ must increase. And help us to um, trust you in your work of the kingdom, in what you are doing among us and in us. Lord, I pray for the leaders of this church, including myself and Pastor George, the deacons, the Stephen leaders, any person in leadership in this church, Lord. Help us to decrease so that you may increase. In Jesus' name, amen.